But again, it is, um, it is my joy to continue our series this week on 1 Peter. Last week, we had the joy of hearing from our very own Anita, who uh, opened up space for us to explore the character of Peter. So we looked at Peter's life, what it looked like to engage in the world, what the transition in his life uh, through different moments um, opens up for us as people. And so we have moments of failure, of him denying Christ, but then we also have this moment at the end where we see that his life is still called, regardless or irrespective of that failure, of the stumbling. And it's with that in mind that it invites us to uh, think about this chapter in 1 Peter 2. And as we read it, I want you to... I want you to... Um, to pay close attention to this reading. There's some details that are hidden in the text that might go uh, over our heads a little bit, but we're going to unpack some of that. And as we do, we want to see how Peter's words invite us into the life of God. And so if you would, join me in prayer, and then um, we'll come to the word together. God, we are grateful for the gift of this day. We're grateful for this time to gather and pause in our week to meet you, to know you, to be known by you. We pray that this uh, spoken word would be faithful to the written word and that it would lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray this with Christ by the power of the Spirit. And everyone said, amen. All right, so I'm going to go straight into our scripture passage. This is, again, 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. Now you are coming to him as to a living stone. Even though this stone was rejected by humans, from God's perspective, it is chosen and valuable. You yourselves are being built like living stones into a spiritual temple. You are being made into a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Thus, it is written in Scripture... Look, I am laying a cornerstone in Zion, chosen and valuable. The person who believes in him will never be shamed. So God honors you who believe. For those who refuse to believe, though, the stone the builders toss aside has become the capstone. This is a stone that makes people stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Because they refuse to believe in the word, they stumble. Indeed, this is the end to which they were appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who are God's own possession. You have become this, uh, you have become this people so that you may speak of the wonderful acts of the one who called you out of darkness into his amazing light. Once you weren't a people, but now you are God's people. Once you hadn't received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. This is an uh, exceptionally rich passage. To give you an idea of how dense this passage is, in these seven verses that we read, six of the verses either directly quote or have a clear allusion to multiple stories in the Old Testament. So it's like when you read something and um, 
you have background information. There's like Easter eggs hidden all through this passage. Six of these seven verses either directly quote or have the allusion to the Old Testament. It pulls from the Psalms, pulling from Isaiah. It connects to the heart of Israel's story in the Old Testament. In this chapter, Peter is making a claim about identity for Christians. In the face of uncertainty, in the face of doubt, upheaval, in the face of persecution, Peter writes this letter to encourage all Christians to stay true to their faith, to be steadfast, to be rooted in Christ, and to stay grounded. Remember who this book is written to. It's not written to a specific church like some of Paul's letters. So for Paul, you have like the letter to the Corinthians. Well, that's written to the church in Corinth. Or you have Ephesians. That's written to the church in Ephesus. It's not written to a specific church like that. 1 Peter 1.1 tells us that it's written to exiles living in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are parts of the world that are close to modern-day Turkey and that extending region. We are living in a different time, a different place. In many ways, in many senses, we are living in a different world to the world that Peter's writing into. And yet, as he's encouraging believers in their faith, his encouragement transcends space and time, and it meets us today in Seattle, 2022, and it asks us to reflect on one key question. This is the question. What grounds you in your faith? What grounds you in your faith? What makes it come alive to you? What roots your faith? Here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, you know, faith exists a little differently than it does in other parts of the United States. That's not making a value statement about the nature of faith or the quality of faith. It is just making an observation that because of regional history, social impact of religion in different areas, the cultural norms that express themselves in distinct ways across the country, to be a person of faith in the Pacific Northwest and to be a person of faith, say, in the Southeast, those are just different experiences of the world. Here's what I mean. In the South, everyone has a church. Right? Everyone has a church. And in the South, everyone has a pastor. Now, prior to coming to Bethany, I pastored a small rural church in Tennessee, kind of in the Appalachian Mountains. And, you know, there were folks who I'd seen maybe three times in five years. But if you ask them on the street, where do you go to church? They have an answer. Who's your pastor? They have an answer, right? They might not be there, but everyone has a church. And, you know, that's not a knock on them. It's simply the recognition that if you ask 10 random strangers in Seattle, where do you go to church? Do you have a church? Do you have a pastor? Think about the answer you'll have there, right? Different worlds, completely different worlds. My guess is that most folks would even push back on the very nature of the question. Why do you assume I go to church, right? Like, there's an edge 
that's existing in this context compared to faith in a different context. Another example. I coached high school soccer. When I was in Tennessee, did you know what our lightest training day of the week had to be? Anyone guess? Well, one more time. Sunday, well, we didn't do anything on Sunday, so no, that's not the wrong answer. The right answer is Wednesday, right? And why Wednesday? Church night, right? Whether it's prayer meeting, whether it's youth group, whether it's Awanas, whether it is some kind of Bible study, that's church night, Wednesday and Sunday. And so our training for soccer, we didn't train on Wednesdays. It was a shortened film day or it was a stretching day or something. We did something different because we had no time. Half my team, three quarters of my team would be like, gotta go. Not showing up to practice. The Lord's calling. Church, right? I'm like, I'm a pastor. We could do it here. Doesn't work, right? (laughs) Doesn't work. They have something new there. And so this was also a public school, right? We're in public school. But no one ever scheduled games on Wednesdays. Like, practice was shortened, no games on Wednesdays, because that's church night. Now, there's the cultural imprint that church made so that even if you were a kid on my team who doesn't go to church, the American Southern Christian norms that shaped the entire pattern of life in that area, that influences our experience of faith, the nature of your faith of how it happens. Now, hear me. I bring this up, again, not to make a value statement about the nature of society, what's better or not. Thinking that way misses the point. Instead, I bring this up because it's clear that where we live right now isn't the same world. I mean, in one context it is. In one sense it is. We're on the globe, but we're in a different world. Here, city life doesn't stop for church. It's different. There, businesses shut down early on Wednesdays because it's church night. You don't have a lot of businesses open on Sunday. You don't sell alcohol, like in the county. There's a bunch of uh, contextual things from faith that are just a little different. And so it's to people like us that Peter is writing this book to. That's why I actually love this book, First Peter. This book is written to people who are not the people in the religious center of the ancient world. A fun fact for you is that in the ancient world, Christians were actually considered to be atheists by the rest of society. Now, why is that? Well, it's because you didn't believe in the pantheon of gods. You didn't believe in that expression of spirituality, right? And Christianity is claiming that expression, that's false, We don't believe in that. So Christians were considered to be atheists in that world. A little different than where we are now, right? But that's the the extent. And so 1 Peter is not written again to a specific church. It's written to people who have to navigate living their faith in a culture that doesn't care to recognize it as an expression of relationship with the one true God. That's who First Peter's written to. And so, does that resonate with where you're at, with where we're at? For me, it does. It speaks directly to us. Which is why I want you to notice how 
This passage today is presented to us with the subtitles. Our reading is nestled in a passage about your identity as believers. Right? If you look at the, the, the passage of Scripture, the subtitle, Your Identity uh, as Believers. Let's unpack a little bit what Paul is doing, or uh, what Peter's doing here. The passage begins by using this imagery of Christ like a living stone. Christ like a living stone. Which is kind of a curious word picture when you think about it, right? A living stone. John H. Eliot, he's a, uh, a Lutheran b- biblical scholar, has written a couple commentaries on First Peter. His work and specialty is there. He talks about how the living stone is meant to make us pause. It's a bringing together of things, one thing's supposed to be solid and firm, the other thing dynamic and organic, and it's moving, it's growing. What do we make of this? Well, that's the very nature of faith, is it not? He talks about how living means that you have the capacity for growth. If you're alive, you have the ability and the capacity to continue to grow, to mature, to live. To be a stone is something that is solid, something that stands the test of time. And when you bring these together, it's talking about, in this passage, describing Christ as a living stone who will exist long past when all the stone portrayals of Caesar, of the emperor, of the governors, all the statues that have been built in his context that venerate this God or uh, venerate the Caesar who would be like a God, those are going to crumble. Christ is different. Christ the living stone in verse 5 is building up his people like living stones, into a living temple. And catch this, in verse 5, you are being made into a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Christ. The call that's happening in this passage is it starts by describing Christ as A dynamic God who's also firm and will extend past the portrayals of deity, personhood. Just take that and live beyond it. Firm and steadfast. That's Christ. And then we are also being made into living stones. Who then build a spiritual temple, which is the place where people come to encounter God. The place of, quote-unquote, mediation. Are you starting to see how Peter's using imagery to instruct exiled Christians who have to look at these images carved in stone of uh, figures who claim to be God? And he's saying to them, Christ is the stone that's going to outlive all of these. He's going to outlive all of these. In, your, in, in our commitment to Christ, you are serving as a sacred place 
for people to encounter Christ. In this passage, when it calls the people of God exiled to become spiritual temples, you are becoming the people who are serving as sacred space, but also sacred people who steward the presence of Christ in other people's lives. And this is a key, key thread to take from the imagery that Peter's using. He says, you don't just become someone who mediates. You also become the very place that mediates. You become the place and the people, space and priesthood. This is what Peter wants to encourage us to recognize, that in spite of our context, life with Christ is a life that inhabits and interacts with people in unique ways. But how do we know the way that he's talking about? How do we do this? Peter continues on in this passage. In the next three verses, this is verses 6, 7, and 8, pay attention to the word picture again. I'm going to read the verses and visualize where you're being placed or where he's calling the people of God. Try to see what the words are saying. Here we go, verse 6. Thus it is written in Scripture... Look, I am laying a cornerstone in Zion, chosen and valuable. The person who believes in him will never be shamed. So, God honors you who believe. For those who refuse to believe, though, the stone the builders toss aside has become the capstone. This is a stone that makes people stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Because they refuse to believe in the word, they stumble. Indeed, this is the end to which they were appointed. Today, we're using the Common English Bible because it takes, in my estimation, it takes the Greek differences of all those words differently. If you'll notice, in some other English translations, or if you had to memorize this passage as a kid— maybe uh, the King James Version, it's the same word all the way through. There's no distinction between cornerstone, capstone, stone, rock. That nuance doesn't happen. The Common English Bible takes the Greek that is a different word for all of that seriously. And it's probably the only English translation that I know of that does this. And so you might see in... um, You might see in other English translations, when you get to verse 7, there's a footnote that says, or the the text might say capstone and then, or cornerstone, and then the footnote says head of the corner or something like that. Because the Greek is a little difficult to parse out. But it begins, let's unpack this image. It begins with verse 6. I'm laying a cornerstone in Zion. Now, a cornerstone is the first stone you lay. It's the foundation. It's on the ground floor. You put that one down, and it lines up the angles for where you go. It lines up the entirety of the building in this direction. He's laying a cornerstone down. And from the imagery as we take it up, we have had Christ called the living stone, called the one who we are all called into, Christ is that cornerstone, the one that directs your identity, the one that gives the building or the space its uh, its trueness. 
keeps the lines in check. It gives it its identity. The next verse, verse 7, has that image of a capstone or the head of the corner, the stone that goes on top. And for those who... um, for, for other translations, it won't make this distinction. It might say the chief cornerstone, but that doesn't really get to the, the word picture that's, head, that's being played out. If you have the cornerstone at the bottom, and now you have a capstone, the thing that goes on top, the reason that something goes on top is, one, it finishes, right? It talks about completion. You don't have the top stone, the very top one, uh, without things being finished. But also, as that sits at the top, it keeps everything in order this way. The pressure, the weight of it keeps things in order going up and down. And so you start having this idea where if you look at the pyramids, they always have that smaller pyramid up top. And you're like, oh, it's a mini pyramid. That's cool. That's the capstone, right? It's sitting on top. And it's one describing what this thing is about, but it's also keeping the rest of the shape intact cornerstone, capstone. And then you have in the next verse the idea of the language. There's a stumbling stone of which Peter, the one who's writing this, tells us it will be like a rock. Peter, his name comes from that word Petros. When Christ meets him and says, Simon, On this rock, I'm going to build my church. Your name is going to be Peter, Petros now. You see what's happening in this verse. Peter's telling us that you might stumble. We might stumble. But you cannot stumble any further than me, the rock who has failed over and over and over again. And I'm still calling you, regardless of where you are, to be a part of the spiritual temple. Whether you deny me three times, whether in the first encounter when Peter meets Jesus, um, or when, when Christ says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, oh, you're the Christ. Like, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And then what does Jesus say? Like, heaven and earth have not revealed this, or have revealed this to you. Like, you are... Uh, you're nailing it. That's absolutely right. And then the very next verse, what does Peter do? Did not, or he, he says something to make Jesus say, get behind me, Satan. Like you've misunderstood everything that you think you've said. You've received revelation just from God. That's great. But the way that you're interpreting that and internalizing it, the way that you think, uh, that doesn't mean what you think it means. Like get behind me, Satan. He's made a blunder. Even though he's received revelation directly from God. This happens over and over and over again in his life. It's kind of to the image that Anita painted for us last week. He's going to deny Christ. He's going to stumble. The rock will be something that also causes other people to stumble. And yet, in this image and in these words that he's painting out for us, People who live on the margins of faith, so to speak. People who live in exile. 
we might be a stumbling stone, but you can take solace that me, Peter, the rock, I've messed up too. Join the temple. Build the temple. And be the space and also the people who mediate encounter with God. Be those kind of people. No matter where you are. Are you seeing how this word picture starts to invite us into living identity as Christ calls us? Why does this matter? It matters because in these verses, Peter starts with the cornerstone, the foundation. He moves to the capstone, completion, and invites us to sit in the middle of life with God, to be living stones in the midst of that. Another way of saying this in biblical language is, God is the Alpha and the Omega, right? The beginning and the end. And guess what? We're invited into the middle of that story. To live out that story. To be Christ and extend the presence of Christ from beginning to end in the place that we're at. Another way to think of this is the passage starts by framing out what faithful Christian identity looks like. It's rooted on the cornerstone of Christ. That's giving you alignment. It finds its being in the capstone of Christ that holds life together. And you have identity and you have telos. You have identity and completion. You have all these things that then invite us into a life with God that ensures that even if we stumble, we cannot escape the, uh, the gravity of where God is going. If we talk about formation, this text invites us to live lives that are rooted on the firm foundation of Christ. And it also says that we find wholeness, completion, we find our telos, when Christ is our cap that holds things together. And so we started this morning with the question, what grounds you in your faith? What does that? Maybe it's tradition. Maybe it's a sense of obligation. Maybe it's community. Maybe it's a personal encounter you had with God that solidified a moment with Christ. Maybe it's the basis for your ethics. That's why I'm Christian. It leads to a, it gives a moral framework or an ethical framework. Maybe it's something else. If there's one thing that this passage reminds us of, It's that the grounding and completion of our faith is Christ. It can be those things, but this text calls us to ground our faith in Christ. And in our commitment to Christ, the way that we hold space for people and the ways that we serve 
as mediators is work done in the tension of being living stones, of being able to have the capacity to grow, and also being able to be firm in conviction and to withstand the test of time. It calls us to be people who are steadfast and solid without losing the ability to also be dynamic human, human beings that might make mistakes. This is where when it comes to faith and we talk about passing on the faith, oftentimes that image, it frames out an image of faith that is something you have a hold of and then I give it to you and then you take it and then make it your own, right? But to pass on the faith misses the continual nature that faith is always dynamic in its invitation. And so what if you change the metaphor from passing on something that's complete and whole to let us, in every season of life, co-discover what this faith looks like. Let us explore the ways that God is at work in our lives. That doesn't mean that you throw everything out from the past, but it's also always a recognition that we are living lives of guided discovery. This is what good teaching is, by the way. Like, teaching is not just the transmission of the information that you have a hold of. Teaching that lands well is teaching that brings us together into the discovery of it, the invitation into it. And so we steward the faith, because faith isn't an object that we own. Faith is a process that we're invited into to hold. And with this, this brings humility to us. Now, Christ's church is built through God's reliving of Israel's past. That's what we're seeing in this passage. He is taking these images in these seven verses. Again, there's so many more little threads that we could parse out. If you look at, actually, the text in... Um, if you look at it online, on like Bible Gateway, because they always have those links to other, uh, other passages, this passage just has all these letters. But you can just click. Oh, there's a reference. Click. There's a reference. There's so many. Right? We've just unpacked the visual image that's being played out by Peter. But Christ's church is being built in this story by re reliving Israel's past. In Christ's church, it continues to be built through God's redemption of our pasts, especially in the moments that we've failed. Especially in the moments that we've failed. Christ, our foundation, and Christ, our capstone, holds us together for the sake of the world. This is the ground of our witness and the foundation of faith. It's a claim to say that Christ is enough. Christ is enough for a world that is asking questions about what is to come. Christ is enough. And that's because Christ isn't a proposition 
Right? It's not an idea. But the claim of Christian faith is that Christ is a person. Faith is relationship. And in that relationship with a living, dynamic God who meets us in steadfastness and also gives us the capacity to grow, this is where our faith becomes alive. So faith lived in Pacific Northwest is looking different than faith lived in Tennessee. Believe me, it really is. Especially when you get to national holidays. Like, things shut down completely over there for different reasons. And like, the, the, the bringing together expresses itself in its own unique way. Not a value statement, but that's just not the, our experience here. It's not the same. And so, what does it look like then If we say Christ is enough, Christ is our rooting and identity, what's that look like? Over the next two more sermons in this book, Peter is unpacking, how do you actually live this out? Like, I'm all in, Christ the firm foundation. I'm all in on this idea. But what's that look like? The next two sermons we do in this series will explore those ideas a little more. But to set the groundwork after what uh, Anita opened for us, which was the person of Peter, now we've set the, the stage for more direct instruction that will come in the next ones. That's where I want us to not miss the importance of getting to tactics first without first grounding why we do what we do. We do it because of Christ. We're here because of Christ. Because Christ first loved us and because we want to also be pressed into a deeper love for Christ and the world. And so we'll explore more things coming up in the next couple weeks. But today, Christ is enough. It reminds us of this prayer, the prayer of St. Patrick. As we listen to this prayer... I want us to first receive it as I pray it over us. And then we'll pause and then let us pray this aloud with our neighbor over ourselves and our neighbor. This is the grounding of our faith, the ground and the top and everything in between. This prayer is from, again, St. Patrick. And as he uh, was making space and going to Ireland to, uh, in many ways, share the gospel. He has this prayer in the midst of persecution and also just trial. This is the thing that grounds him. Receive this prayer, we'll pause, and then let us pray it together as a heart song for us individually and as a community. Christ with me. Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me. Christ beneath me, Christ above me. Christ on my right, Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down. Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. 
Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. Let's pause and reflect on the power of these words. Friends, if you would, let us pray this one more time. And this time, in recognition that this is a prayer for our lives, but not just our lives, it's our lives toward a telos, towards an end that leads us to the doorstep of our neighbor. Not just us as an end in itself, but Christ in us for the sake of the world. Let us pray this prayer. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I sit down, oh, oops, Christ when I sit down, sorry about that, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. As we carry this word this week, this firm foundation of Christ in our lives, may God meet us and remind us of ways that we can find our identity in God. And in that identity, may we also hold God and Christ as our capstone. The thing that projects and gives us life, the thing that also keeps things in order in our lives. And in that living, may we become spiritual temples, places and people of encounter that invite the world to come to know this Christ. Christ is all around us. May we co-discover and uh, steward that space well. Let me pray for us and then we'll continue on in worship. God, we're grateful for the gift of this day. We're grateful for this pause. We're grateful for this reminder that Peter wrote millennia ago to remind his church and his people that you are a firm foundation and that even in the midst of stumbling, you meet us just like you met Peter, the rock, who stumbled and fell. You invite us to be your people and temple. Show us how we can do that better. And by your spirit, make us more like you. We pray this with Christ by the spirit. 
Everyone said, amen. Let us continue in worship.